Hello and welcome to FilmWalk. This is Glenn. I'm here with Daniel. Hello. And tonight we're going to be reviewing the new film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Eternals. We have watched. Unguided. We have helped them progress. And seen them accomplish wonders. Throughout the years... We have never interfered until now. That was from the trailer of Eternals, the new film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe from director Chloe Zhao, based on the Eternals comic books by Jack Kirby, starring Gemma Chan, Richard Madden, Kamal Nanjiani, Leah McHugh, Brian Tyree Henry, Lauren Ridloff, Barry Keoghan, Don Lee, Kit Harrington, Salma Hayek, and Angelina Jolie. That is a vast ensemble cast. It is a lot of characters to keep track of, all of which are new to this universe. Uh, this film takes place in the same Marvel Cinematic Universe we, that we've uh, been used to. It takes place after the snap and uh, the blip, or whatever these terms are for half the population disappearing for five years and then reappearing five years later, the world in disarray. We don't see a lot of that disarray in this film, however, because it does not focus on what's happening right now. It focuses on the much more lengthy history of this group of god things that have been on the planet Earth fighting against, waging a secret war against these mysterious creatures called deviants since the dawn of time. For purposes that will be revealed over the course of the film. So, Daniel, we're definitely going to have a spoiler section in this one. Um, I would say the plot twists come fast and furious during this film. Um, or at least the revelations uh, of solutions to the mystery of the existence of these things. How they've been around this whole time. What their interactions with each other have been like. What their interactions with human history have been like. So, I'll put it to you. This film uh, was nearly three hours long. It's from a director that uh, I, don't, I don't believe you saw Nomadland. I did not have any prior familiarity with uh, with Chloe Zhao before this, um, except that I that I, she is an Academy Award winner for Best Director at this point. So this film had quite a pedigree going into it. It also had a vast uh, and very interesting cast um, of uh, of character actors and comedians and actors who haven't uh, done things in this vein before, like Angelina Jolie, actors who uh, made their pedigree in foreign cinema, like Don Lee, um, who uh, is a Korean actor who was uh, famously in Train to Busan. I now know where I, where I know him from, uh, who plays the, uh, the character of Gilgamesh, the super strong one. And uh, this team of superheroes, despite being immortal as their base superpower, have have fairly specific powers individually. They are all, as you put it, they are all specialists, uh, which leads to such hilarious scenes as Gemma Chan, who is ostensibly the leader of this group and the and one of the most powerful members of this group running across a lava field because she can't move any faster. <laughs> she can just run like a normal human. So uh, I think much of the comedy in this film was was unintentional. But the comedy that was there, uh, largely from actors like Kamal Nanjiani, who, you know, is obviously a skilled comedian, Brian Tyree Henry, who is uh, who is not really playing the comedy of this at all, but is primarily known as a comedic actor outside of this. This film was kind of all over the place tonally, but uh, I think um, we've uh, we've got a lot to dig into here. So, Daniel, I'll put it to you. What did you think of this film? Ooh, this is uh, quite the mixed bag. You know, on the one hand, we, uh, we have a really diverse cast. You know, we have a, a deaf character. We have a gay character. We have a sex scene in the Marvel Universe, which is 
Daniel appropriate, 1950s-esque, sex scene, I approve. Yeah, they're straight up fucking on the beach of the Canary Islands where they shot this thing, so yeah, we finally get some sex in this movie. way possible, which is what I appreciate, as a, as a Puritan here. As the Tame Puritan and the- deniable for the kids. You know, they're just going to sleep together on the beach. And they're wrestling. Having a special hug. Yeah. You know, uh, Chloe, uh, Chloe Zhao, uh, she's a big fan of the slogs because, like Nomen Land, this movie lasts forever. It's two hours and 37 minutes, but yeah, uh, that is approximately the length of... No, Avatar is longer than this, come to think of it, but it's a, it's, it's a pretty long movie. You know, it's, it's interesting, uh, as we expand the Marvel Universe, I, you get the sense that we're kind of scraping the bottle of the barrel when it comes to unique characters, because I've never heard of the Eternals, and I'm not really a comic book guy, but I've never heard of this crew, and how they're depicted in the movie isn't terribly interesting in a lot of ways. Like, in some ways, certainly. I definitely like gods, like, and, and they're, they're supposed to be Greek gods, and uh, the uh, deviants are, are, are titans. Sure. Like, we, we you know, we, we could track that territory, but I don't know why they would care about anything that happens on Earth because of who they are. Like, and, and as we interweave this uh, Marvel Universe, it doesn't make sense that the Avengers aren't showing up in can- as cameo characters. Like, why wouldn't they care if, like, there's world-ending events? Wouldn't they be involved? They're involved in every other one. Well, I will say, what happens here happens, you know, it is not much of a spoiler to say there is a big CGI showdown at the end of this film. That's just part of the Marvel uh, in-house brand at this point. Um, But this one happens somewhat out of nowhere, as far as the world is concerned, and it literally happens in the middle of the Indian Ocean. So it stands to reason that maybe humanity would not quite know what to do about this, or might be a little bit slow to respond to this. And that is... Tony Stark's got, uh, you know, his other little Stark robots all over the place. I'm pretty sure he'd pick up some disturbance in the force. Well, at this point in the timeline, Tony Stark is dead, and we know he's left behind innumerable robotic slaves to look after Spider-Man and the rest. But uh, as far as we know, you know the the Avengers are in disarray, waiting for new leadership to uh, bring them back together. So, are, are the Avengers um, like the Democrats, always in exactly, disarray, <laughs> constantly? Um, yeah, the uh, you know these are it's a brand new film of superheroes, but really what gets established early on is uh, and and you, you recall I liked this uh, in in a film that I <laughs> I also liked better than you, The Old Guard. That if you're going to have a, a team of characters that are immortal, you kind of have to give them a fucked up sense of morality. And by and large, I think this movie succeeded at doing that that is that is largely a product of the chemistry between these actors there's a whole lot of exposition dumping in this film a lot of backstory um and you really have to have an appetite for that to enjoy this film and i should say i did enjoy this film um i don't think that all of its big ideas landed but i i give the movie a lot of credit for swinging for the fences and not you know not hitting every every pitch that it swung at um it had more ambition than most Marvel films have had, I would say. Yeah, you know, it, it sounded like um, she was trying to have it both ways, the director. She wanted to, have to do the expo dumps and the deeper characters and layers, but then she also has to do the big, you know, cinematic set piece battles. Yeah, Chloe Zhao has a, uh, uh, has a screenplay credit on this. It was co-written by Ryan Furpo and Kaz Furpo, as well as Patrick Burley, with the, the Furpos having a uh, story, having story credits as well. So I don't know how much of this was cribbed directly from the comics or not, but I, I think that I would concede your point that the Eternals as a concept feel a little bit half-baked to me. They're kind of borrowing from all different mythologies around the world. They're even borrowing names and iconography from, right. you know, as far flung as there's Greek stuff here. There's clearly some Norse-inspired stuff here. Mesopotamia with Gilgamesh, yeah. 
But, you know, I still enjoy these actors and these characters. It's just a question of how well it coalesces into a whole. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. And if you had any favorite performances here or performances you thought worked better than others, I am curious about that. I really enjoy Kingo, uh, not only as like a comic relief character. but This is Kamel Nanjiani's character, yes. who, who is a Bollywood star in the present day. But how he adapted, I guess. So what I was interested in learning is, okay, so these are immortal characters. How do they adapt to being human? Right. Because essentially they're a stranded characters. Right. Because we learn in the beginning that they're there to uh, defeat the deviants. They do so. And then they're just kind of waiting around until they get further orders. It's kind of like MASH. Right. Like they're in Korea and they're just waiting for the next set of orders. Their, their war should be over by now. It's been running for 11 years, which was longer than the actual war. Yeah. I like that comparison a lot, actually. Thank you. They're kind of like MASH. So. What I was trying to figure out was, okay, so how does each one of these characters adapt to being human? And for me, my favorite character was Kingo, not only because he was the comic relief character, but because he had, I guess, the best sense as to who he was and where he fit in in this human universe, which was, I'm a Bollywood star, and I'm just creating my own mythos of family. <laughs> that I'm, I represent each generation of the same family of Bollywood star. That was, that was fun. His character had a purpose. He had goals. He seemed the most human out of all of them. And then we have Sprite, who, for some reason... Who appears to be a 12-year-old girl. Yeah, for some reason is an adolescent. Uh, played by Leah McHugh, yeah. And, uh, you know, she desperately wants to be a real girl. So she's basically <laughs> a Peter Pan character. Fine. Like, let's, let's explore what that means. Yeah, and throwing in a, a bit of the inscrutability of, you know, whatever Uber God or being created them. And we, we do learn a bit more about that over the course of the film here. The inscrutability of that God's plan and how this character basically resents her own existence. Like, why was I created this way? Why was I made this way? There's a nice subtle moment at the beginning where we meet this character at a nightclub and she's at a bar, but we see her as an adult woman. And this is the first time we see this character, you know, and, and a man saddles up to the bar and starts hitting on her. And she kind of you know, responds to him, but then leaves. And then we see that she, she has the ability to project these illusions into people's minds. So we see that we see the spell wears off and we see what she actually looks like. And it's such a fascinating layer to this character because what we're actually seeing is a, a fairly common coming of age trope of a child who wants to be a grown up. But what's literally happening here is this is an ancient one who is 7,000 years old or whatever. Yeah, you think she's more like a Anne Rice vampire? <laughs> yeah, who feels like she's been aloof from some quintessential aspects of the human experience, i.e. grown ups wanting to hit on you. So it's sort of twisting a common trope there. And it just very quick visual, you know, they don't dwell on it. It was just a nice little moment. So. But characters that didn't really work for me as well uh, was Ajak, uh, Selma Hayek. Like, you have Selma Hayek in a Marvel film. I'm expecting her to be fun like she was in Bliss, and she's not fun at all in this. And that, that seemed like a missed opportunity, you know, missed opportunity because she's such a fun actor. Okay, do you think that... Uh, so I, I understand Kamel Nanjiani is somebody that I expect fun from because he's primarily a comedic actor. But if he had been a completely non-comedic character and had just been a superhero, I don't know that I would have been disappointed because that's what the that's what the material demands. So does it make sense for Ajak, to, for Ajak, the healer, the spiritual leader of the group, to be kind of humorless about the situation, especially in light of, in light of developments? And that's fine because... Hire somebody else. I see Selma Hayek, I'm thinking, she's going to be fun. So you just thought it was poor casting, then? Yeah, you know, if I were to put Selma Hayek in the Marvel Universe, I would pick a different character for her. Now, what about Angelina Jolie? 
honestly had thought her character as Athena was funny. <laughs> like, oh, like the way they treated the mental illness was weird to me. Like, I wasn't, I didn't know if I was supposed to laugh at it or be like gravely concerned. I found her character very tonally uneven because at times they were using her as a plot device. At times they were using her as, I mean, her relationship with, with Don Lee's character of Gilgamesh is one of the most sweet things that is depicted in this film. He's, he becomes sort of a caretaker for her over, right. over all these years. And there's clearly a strong bond of family love between these two. And that carries through their performances quite well. Um, and, you know, you could really tell they worked, they worked on this between the two actors and this, and the two actors have chemistry here. That said, Thena is barely a character, and they kind of just use her like like she's there to to whoop ass in some pretty significant ways. And I actually find it, it it's kind of interesting that she's one of the more powerful members of the group, but they give her this significant disadvantage and an, and a uh, and an aspect to her character that makes her less reliable in a fight. And it makes it so the rest of the team kind of has to look out both for her as a threat and also for her as a you know as potentially somebody who could be seriously hurt because she doesn't because she can't doesn't always know what she's doing or what's going on so i don't know that you needed a powerhouse actress like angelina jolie for this role but you know the character kind of worked for me it's just she was all over the place now what did you think about uh discount uh tony stark you know fast <laughs> did you like did you like him uh, well, Fastos is Brian Tyree Henry. Is that who you were talking yes, about? Uh, the yes. uh, the weapons and tech guy. So, Brian Tyree Henry is an actor that I have a very strong opinion of. Um, he's been on Atlanta. He was in uh, actually he was in Spider Man into the Spider Verse. This is his second Marvel uh, film appearance, um, as it is for Gemma Chan as well. You know, just he was hiding behind animation. She was hiding behind blue makeup uh, in, in Captain Marvel. So we don't we don't necessarily notice, but. This is uh this is a character that frankly I think he kind of sleepwalked through. I think that give you know making him the family man and uh, and also making him the only character who's just kind of you know this is the first time Disney Marvel gets any credit for straight up just including a gay character and uh you know integrating his his family stakes into the mundane. He's got a spouse, he's got a child. You know, he's got a reason why he's tied to this world. It's the same motivation, literally the same motivation that they gave Tony Stark in Avengers Endgame. So that makes it doubly funny that you're calling him discount Tony Stark here. I mean, he's um, a tech you know, guy and he has a family. It's basically this similar character, right? His yeah, he's either discount Tony Stark or he's discount Cyborg uh, or or I don't know, discount. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of other characters that just have technology. They can kind of just wield at will. Uh, there, there have been a few like that where they just kind of have a super suit that they can turn into whatever. Um I'm thinking now of, of Idris Elba in uh, the Suicide Squad as well. So you know, I like that he you know, was a was a gay character. I think that's, that's great. They didn't make a big fuss about it. He was just he just so happened to be gay. And it was totally normal. It wasn't. They didn't have him look to the camera and say, "Accept me." You know, like it, it was fine. But I didn't care about his character that much because his character outside of the family man layer didn't have much to him. I yeah, I, I agree. I, I think there were more layers to this. And I think that that Brian Tyree Henry was uh, not you didn't need an actor of this caliber to play this role. So getting to the actors I did like, though, you like every actor. Uh, How did you think this uh, worked as an ensemble? There there were several standouts. So my question to you is, how did you feel about them as an ensemble? Like they're supposed to be a team. Did they work as a team? I I go back and forth on this, and this is one of the areas where the film was a bit uneven because what we have here is we get two sort of competing timelines. We have the present day timeline where they're under this 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 looming threat, um, which you know we'll talk about when we get into spoilers here. 
And then we have this other timeline, which is their complete backstory. So we see that they were a coherent team for a long time. We see them we see them fighting alongside each other at the peak of their powers and at the peak of their unity. And then we see this moment of crisis, which where they're brought back together by by, you know, this sort of precipitating dire event. And I don't know, half the like them coalescing again as a team after we're simultaneously seeing them fighting alongside each other as a team. It's like we're it's like we're kind of seeing two different competing stories at once. We're seeing we're seeing them work as a team and then we're seeing them have to reinvent that same dynamic again after thousands of years. And while individual interactions there worked, that this felt like an old god family with old decisions, old grievances, old regrets um, amongst each other, old relationship dynamics. Um, and this is just the latest thing they're working with. In particular, um, Richard Madden as Icarus and Gemma Chan as Cersei. I thought they worked really well as the old god married couple. You know, they were together for 5,000 years before they split up for reasons unknown. And that's a big deal, you know. Even as even as uh, in the present day, Cersei is uh, pursuing a romance with another Game of Thrones actor, Kit Harington, as Dane Whitman. So I kind of have two answers: How well did they work as a superhero team? Well, it depends when you mean. How well did they work as an ensemble of actors? I kind of go back and forth on that too, because I think there were individual pairings in here that worked. I think the entire team just felt like they were contractually obligated to show up at the same place and time. And some of them were definitely more in focus than others. I mean, the speedster is barely a character. Sprite, again, you know, other than wanting to be a grown-up, is barely a character. I think they're, they're sort of a core group of people that are focused on here. There's Cersei, uh, Gemma Chan. There's Icarus, Richard Madden. Uh, there's Kingo to a lesser extent uh, as Kamel Nanjiani, but... I don't know. I feel like the movie kind of loses the thread on Kingo. He literally disappears from the final battle, and I don't really know what happened to him. Oh, and Barry Keegan, I would say, or Barry Keoghan, I cannot for the life of me pronounce his name correctly. He's Irish. I not only very much like this performance from him, probably playing the most likable version of his usual creepitude that he's uh, ever played before, but I thought he worked really well with the rest because this is a guy that they clearly need as a part of the group, but they're also clearly a little bit put off by. So, well, anyone who uses compulsion as a as a skill is uh, someone to not trust, right? I, and the reason why I asked you the question was I felt like there was just too many characters that we were supposed to focus on. Like, they basically just dumped a pantheon on us and said, I care about these people. And I'm like, ah, like there's a lot of you. And yeah. And I mean, the, the disadvantage there is of course, an Avengers end game characters might only get three minutes of screen time, but we've got multiple movies to build up our affection for them. So we can lend a bit more sympathy to the final battle, because even though we didn't get much from them this time, we got something from them at some point. Well, yeah, they all so. had their own individual movies, right? So when Thor shows up for 10 minutes, I'm like, oh, but Thor had like three movies worth of Thor. So I know who, who Thor is and what he cares about, what he's all about. Well, so that's why I think the movie was three hours long. They wanted to give you all this backstory so that hopefully by the end, when the final battle is going to happen, you do care about these people. And my answer to that is I, I somewhat cared about some of them. That's, I, that's basically all I can do. I didn't really care about them because their mission, narratively speaking, doesn't have the hook to make me care. Right? Because I, I don't see why they would care personally about their mission the way that they do. I have thoughts on that, but I think they're going to have to wait in, until we get into spoilers here because the nature of their mission is the thing. Also, the deviants are terrible CGI. I, I don't, I don't mean to harp on how bad it was because I know probably the animators you know worked really hard on it, but as a, as a character conceptual design, they were like just wolf things with maybe extra parts with. 
sort of bits of Ultron where they're sort of morphing and changing in real time and they have little stripy bits on them. Yeah, I'm with you. They were the second worst CGI creation in this film. I'll tell you the worst one, but it's going to have to wait until we get into spoilers. Okay, fair enough. I guess as antagonists and as like, uh, you know, Titans that they're supposed to represent, I just didn't care. I just thought it was bad looking. And every time they show up, I'm like, why should I be emotionally invested in them defeating these things? Like they're just poorly constructed CGI monsters. I think that's a fair point. I also think that the the action in this film, for all of the little glowy bits wrapping around these characters and being shot in various directions, is not all that interesting or coherent. And, and I think that, you know, the, the movie wanted to have a Ragnarok at the end. It wanted to have a giant battle between the old gods and new and, and just go crazy with it. And I... I think it did go crazy with it, and I think the action was at least somewhat interesting to me, but it, it got a little bit repetitive. I would say the most interesting battle in this thing is in the rainforest halfway through, and even that one is half obscured by fog or mist. It, it's it's hard for me to say what I liked about this movie, because all the things that I liked about this movie, I have disliked about previous Marvel films. I thought, by and large, the, uh, the actors uh, and the expo dumps taking all of this pretty seriously is something that I actually disliked about the movie Thor, the original one, which lays out the Nine Realms and Asgard and the old gods and new, and I'm just like, why do I care about any of this shit? That was my reaction, to, even as it's, it's directed by Kenneth Branagh, it's fucking Sir Anthony Hopkins delivering this dialogue, and I just don't care. I'm waiting for the superhero punchy punch battles in this movie i kind of i kind of had the opposite reaction maybe i'm a little bit tired of the superhero punchy punchy battles and i want it all to mean something so you did i mean change is good but i guess when when we get into spoilers we could talk about like how that like how the exposition impacted your enjoyment or or non-enjoyment of the film well i think we should go ahead and get into spoilers then because uh but i just want to gush about Gemma chan one more time here this is an actor who uh we've previously seen in a few things uh notably crazy rich asians um she played the uh side character astrid who is i think the sister of the groom or the bride or somebody she's some family member and she has a side plot that takes up maybe 20 minutes of screen time in crazy rich asians involving her husband and, and shopping and things like that and it's a pretty trifling side plot but she is such a charismatic and interesting performer that as I was watching this this side plot play out in that movie I was just like I want more from this character <laughs> I want an entire movie focused on this character I'm waiting for the Gemma Chan lead role and this movie delivers that she is the lead character in this film and I every minute she was on screen was absolutely magnetic I could not take my eyes off her or stop listening to a thing she was saying so I'm wondering if you had the same vibe here that's part of what made her whole dynamic with Icarus work so well is that she is such a skilled performer mm, I I don't think I liked her performance as much as you did, but I definitely thought that she made for a good leader uh, of the group. You know, not not only because of her transmutation powers, but she seemed like she was in command. Her magnetism is similar to that of Chris Evans. So if you're going to compare her to, to the likes of Captain America, I think that's a good comparison. I guess so. Yeah, I, I think for this group, she was the Captain America. And that even though uh, Icarus was totally doing a Homelander thing, which uh, I yep. appreciate it, but I love it. He's a Homelander thing, even though in dialogue we established that Superman, the comic book, exists in this in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Superman is a stupid character, and it's the, Superman is the worst character in comic books. Period. Yeah, other than other than not being a sociopath, um, I think that him being him being Homelander, the laser beam eyes were definitely you know that was like the look and feel of that as he's moving around and shooting them was felt very Homelander. But there are only so many ways you can do that effect. 
Well, did you have any final thoughts before we get into spoilers? No, I think we need to get into these uh, monsters and what it all means. Well, I'll tell you who's not going to tell us what it all means is Harish Patel, who plays uh, who plays Karun, uh, Kingo's manager, who is shooting a sort of behind-the-scenes documentary during the film. And I, I enjoyed this guy. I thought that his, his interactions with Kingo were very funny and his persistent desire to shoot the action so that he could show the world what an awesome real-life superhero his Bollywood boss is. Um, all of that said... It felt completely out of place in this movie, and and they basically let that character fall out of the movie halfway through, and he's not missed. Um, so yeah, it's so I it sounds like I'm ragging on the movie here. I, I will stand by what I said on the night, which is that I mostly liked this film. I would say it was probably three quarters of the way there. Karun should have been blown up or eaten by one of the uh, deviants or something. Well, that's what would have happened in the DC version of this, but instead he gets a, a lovely speech and a heartwarming send off. So. Kingo should have had an emotional moment where he's like, my manager, you were the best one of the 50 I've had in 7,000 years. Yeah, we only do the comical kill off of the lovable sidekick in, I don't know, Deadpool. All right, well, from here on out, spoilers for Eternals. So, Transformers, robots in disguise. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, man, Daniel, uh, I'll, 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 I'll say some nice things first. Please do. That moment at the very end, which, by the way, totally would have been a post-credit sequence in a, in a previous Marvel film. It's almost like they had some confidence in this story beat and wanted to show it as a part of the actual film. But when Arashem, their gigantic god robot thing, shows up <laughs> looming so over the earth, taking up the entire goddamn horizon, just barely visible in the blue sky, and basically just reaches down, plucks them off the planet, and uh, and, and takes them off to be judged... Holy shit, that is one of the coolest things I've ever seen in a Marvel film. Seeing that on the IMAX screen was was awesome. Um, all of that said, what did you think of Arashem and his uh, his coterie of robots and, and life farms and all this other shit that apparently is happening throughout the universe this whole time? Okay, so here's the thing about Arashem. Like, I'm fine with Arashem being a goofy giant space robot. It, it gave me Power Rangers vibes, but fine. I don't. I don't care. It, it's cool. I don't get why if he's farming bodies to make suns to create other worlds, to create other life, he wouldn't have interfering Thanos when he did a snap because that would have taken away half of his resources. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's the inscrutability of God's plan, right there, uh, Daniel. I think. No, no, that's called poor storytelling. What they said about Thanos' snap was that all it did was delay the emergence of the Celestial, uh, which is the giant god baby that's living inside the Earth and has been the entire time, because the Earth is a giant god baby egg. God baby. <laughs> and and uh, they have to have a certain amount of life on the outside to in order to wake the Celestial, which is why... Which is why the Eternals are there, which is why the Deviants are there, because them fighting this battle is what encourages this society to advance and become intelligent. And it, That's a reach. That is a reach. Uh, that is muddled at best. Um, I think that uh, I think that just hand-waving that away as the inscrutability of God's plan as a way of hand-waving away some incoherent writing choices is definitely cheating a bit, and I think that the movie deserves some condemnation for that. Um, that said, I think that 
you concluded that the movie was saying that humanity was special because that was the reason that was the motivating factor behind some of the Eternals deciding to go against this plan and try to save everyone on Earth from from God's plan, effectively to turn against him, to fall from grace, to to go to hell and become Lucifer. Daniel, they're dying for mankind and they are literally Satan. Oh, my goodness. They're so conflicted. I I am so sick of anthropocentric, you know, anthropocentric uh, nonsense. Like, they're, okay, these things are gods. Do you think this movie takes the position that humanity is special? Yes. Because that is a trope in science fiction. Yes, because Cersei talks about how, oh, humans laugh and they cry and blah de blah de blah and that's why we should save them. I'm like, yeah, but they also rape and they murder and yeah. they commit genocide and they do all sorts of terrible things. Yeah, and we've already seen an Eternal become disillusioned with mankind because his assistance uh, ushering along their technology led to Hiroshima, led to the yeah, end. Yeah, he has like two what? seconds of emotional grief. I'm like, but... But, Which is probably the most serious acting we see from from Henry in this film. <laughs> but, like, uh, but, okay, but, so did he directly impact Hiroshima? Like, did he work on the Manhattan Project? You and I had the same interpretation of this moment, which is that he feels responsible for yes, it because, because he, he helped discount Tony Stark. And yeah, he, but it, but indirectly, he was not directly involved with the Manhattan Project. He didn't teach them how to split the atom. That was something humanity worked out on its own. But he feels responsible for it because he led them in that direction. And, and as a result of this emotional moment they show in the movie, he still wants to save humanity. Not exactly, though, because he steps away for, what, 70 years, 80 years at this point, and he doesn't want anything to do with humanity until he ends up finding a family. Until so he finds we see. Love. And this is, again, where the movie kind of goes on a roller coaster of tones because he become we see him as a fully functioning member of the team. We see him fully committed to the cause. We see him falling out of the cause. And then we just return to him and he's already back on board with the cause because now he's found some humans that he loves. And um, and, and even, you know, he's found one human that he loves and he's created a family that he loves. In so, 7,000 years, he's found one. What do you do with that? I don't know. I don't think this is a character that was taken all that seriously by the film. You know who was taken seriously by the film was Droog, a guy who just decides to wander into the jungle because what he sees is human sacrifices followed by conquistadors. And he realizes, okay, humanity's fucked no matter what we do. I'm just going to take a bunch of them and enslave them in the woods and, uh, and, and just look after my own little tribe for a while. Because Full disclosure, I was waiting for him to turn heel the whole time because... Yeah. His character definitely should be a heel, right? Well, this actor always looks sinister. You know, we just covered him in The Green Knight. Every He's always a creep. Yeah, he's slimy. Yeah, he's a slimy dude. But, uh, and what he does is a monstrous thing. I don't think there's any twist there. This is a guy who manipulates minds and sees other people as tools that he can use. I mean, when he's taking all of his all of his indigenous people and using them as gun turrets to take on the uh, the deviants, a bunch of them get killed, and he doesn't care. So I was hoping that like the movie would have some sort of balls and like have him fight Bolsonaro like that. That I would have liked. Like <laughs> you know, he just takes out some uh, deforestation you know woodcutters and sends their heads back to Bolsonaro. That would be good. This is an area where where myths and legends about gods and monsters kind of try to have it both ways, because we, humanity, always write our gods to be just like us. But we also 
hand wave away their human failings by saying that their their nature is inscrutable by saying that by saying they have long time horizons by saying that they don't think of things in the same way that we do because they're not they're not so attached to any to this one place in time and whoever happens to be alive in it that's why i like the greek deities because they're basically just spoiled people yeah like they're spoiled normal humans they have penny grievances they just have crazy powers I like the idea of these people basically being like humans, but just humans who are exceptionally long lived. But they, okay, they've gone from different planets, right? That's the whole like we see like the the vast uh, factory w- with these different humanoid looking you know android celestials, and I'm like, but Autobots, yeah, robots, sure. But okay, are there other life on other planets, right? Like, did they always do they always show up as humans? What about goat planet? What about hyena planet? What about you know, elephant planet? Like why? I like the idea of the robotic goat versions of these characters <laughs> tromping around goat world. Like I don't know. Like the the, the movie make like the, the movie's message was that humanity's worth saving, and if we all come together, we can we can you know fight and kill God. <laughs> and I I guess I'm so bored with that concept. I think you can come away from this movie's mythology thinking that these characters have become attached to this planet because they have spent so much time on it. And you can also come away saying these characters did not make that decision in previous iterations, but because they've lost all their memories of that time, we don't know how many times this has happened. We don't know how many times these planets have been created, celestials have emerged, wiping out all intelligent life. But why would Arashem create robots that would routinely defy his plans? Oh, well, yeah, obviously this must be a unique event, but it's like they say, arrive late, you know, show up on your character's most interesting day. This is their awakening. This is their this is their self-awareness. They're no longer just following their programming. They're doing their own thing because that's what they've learned how to do over all this time. So I don't mind this as a moment of crisis for them. I don't mind this as a moment where their their motivation fundamentally changes. I just don't think that the movie fully explored that as much as it could have. And the deviants in particular, in addition to being lousy CGI... Uh, were also a narrative failure because all of a sudden the deviants who were just beasts at the beginning of the film start consuming the powers of the Eternals that they managed to kill and vampirize and all of a sudden they're human-like. They've got intelligence. They've got something to say. At least one of them does. So, and one of them even acknowledges, you know, we're we're just tools of a god that are used to kill. Like, wow, why why don't you find common cause here? Yeah, you you would think that a crow, crow's their leader, right? Uh, played by uh, Bill Skarsgård. Yep, same uh, same actor behind uh, it, uh, behind Pennywise the yeah. Clown. So we know he can be creepy when he needs to. Yeah. So I was waiting for that moment where either they find common cause or there's a clear split of, you know, the deviants or Decepticons believe that reality should be a certain way. And then our heroes believe it should be a different way. And then they have conflict. Which is what we got with Thanos. You know, even though they only introduced his motivation over the course of a single film, I at least understood where he was coming from, and I understood where the heroes were coming from, and that made the final battle have stakes. Every fight between the Eternals and the Deviants had just nothing going on, because it was just, I mean, it was just a revenge tale at that point. They killed Gilgamesh, and Thena, when when she's got her mind back, wants revenge, and that's all it was. They they made them intelligent, they gave them something to say, and then they never let them say it, and that was a real missed opportunity. And for a three-hour movie, I think you could fit a few minutes where you could give them some real motivation. Yeah, definitely. 
I mean, they're they're what they're fighting against is basically time and 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 God's plan. Basically, you know, they're fighting against the emergence of this thing they can't possibly face or fight. But even okay, even if they lose, their memories are wiped and they start over. So why do they care? Yeah, I think that when they have the team split up, and this is where you know them working as a superhero ensemble uh, did not quite work, um, because it's it's you know it's like we covered in the first the first part we see them as a functioning superhero team, then we see them becoming disillusioned, then we see them having to come back together, and then over the course of this one timeline, we learn that so we learn that Icarus killed Ajax because he he thought she had betrayed the mission by revealing this information to him and and by uh, you know she was the only one of the of the team that knew about this celestial that was being born inside of the planet and was going to wipe everybody out. Um, so it still doesn't make any sense. Like there's billions of planets in the universe. So you say we don't know where the deviants are coming from, and I agree with that. But I at least know where Icarus is coming from with respect to Ajax, and and to the extent that we saw the two of their points of view clashing, I think that that largely worked. Um, that said, I think the team splitting up and not... Because what would have made sense to me at that point was, oh, you killed Ajax. Well, fuck you. Like, you're not one of us anymore. <laughs> um, you're banished. Like, I know you're I know you're an eternal and you're not going to die, but, like, go away. We don't like you anymore. That seems like the basic starting point. But no, they split along these fault lines of whether they're going to go along with Arashem's plan or not. Yeah, they were trying to do a, a Civil War movie. And this is one where Kingo's twi- where Kingo's position really did not make sense to me. Um, they needed a reason for him to initially go along with uh, with Icarus, and what they came up with was, well, what about the billions of lives that don't exist yet? Which I'm sorry, that's just not that important to me. <laughs> like, if they stop this one celestial from being born, what they're doing is killing this one celestial. They're not killing billions of people. They're just fucking up their boss's plans to create a specific set of billions of people. And and RSM will do something else to do that. Yeah, come on, Kingo. Like, what, what are you doing with your anti-abortion stance here? Yeah, I mean, to the, you know... Like you're grieving future timelines that don't exist and haven't been written yet. Like, move on, dude. Um, so yeah, I did. That was one area where I thought the movie kind of let Kamal Nanjiani down because they, you know, he he had to adopt this motivation that did not really make sense for his character. Um, and then in the end, it doesn't really matter anyway. They're all kind of ultimately on the same side. I, I think that you know, to the extent the final showdown between uh, Cersei and Icarus you know, resulted the way it did. I think that those actors largely sold it, but the way the rest of the team split and were fighting each other was kind of arbitrary. Yeah, I didn't really feel like they had real stakes because they're immortal. Yeah, it was just, we're at the airport, or in this case, the beach, and we have to fight because it's that part of the movie. Yeah, and this is my unique skill, and this is my unique skill, and I'm going to hit you in the head with a rock, walls, but you'll be fine. Yeah, I don't know. I, I I still I still come away with this movie generally with a positive feeling, but I can understand why so many people came away thinking this was a mess and wanted nothing to do with it. So I, I feel like it could, it could have used a lot more tightening up. I would have reduced the cast and I would have streamlined the plot a little bit more. And I say this as like an armchair cornerback here who's never written yeah. a film. So take it with a huge, huge grain of salt. But I, I felt like there it, they're just trying to do too much, and when you introduce an ensemble like this with, with a comic that's not as widely known as like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, like with the key players, I felt this would work better. I think maybe as a TV show, where like each episode you introduce maybe one or two characters and give them proper motivation, and then you build to them killing God. <laughs> <laughs> 
you have to you have to work your way up to killing God. You know, you don't just jump directly into that. We can't just say, "Here's the syllabus. We're gonna go kill God now." Like, hold on. <laughs> I think we I think we're missing a, a nice like meaty middle of the sandwich. Well, also, them going to kill God is something that happens in the end credits of this film. So they're killing the mini God first, and uh, now they, you know, they're they're aborting the mini God, and uh, now they're going to go kill its its papa or its its you know genderless robot immortal thing. Sure, and I don't know Kit Harrington. Like he's he will always be. Well, obviously, if you're going to cast Kit Harrington as no as do nothing boyfriend, he's going to turn into a superhero at of some point. Of course he is, because he's John fucking Snow. Like, come on. The character that he's playing is Black Knight. I don't know. Um, what I that know very is. little else about it, but like, if you think about Black Knight and what you expect that character to be, you know, he's tied to Arthurian legend. He's used various cursed swords, which we see him doing at one point in the toward the end, and that's about it. Like, he's a guy who's really good at sword stuff, which I guess is basically how you describe Jon Snow. So, <laughs> okay, so who's who's Harry Styles playing? Harry Styles is playing Star Fox, um, and this is where uh, the worst CGI character in this film was Pip the Troll, yeah. uh, poor, who introduces him. Pat Apparently Oswald. not a <laughs> poor Pat Oswald. I did not even recognize. I was like, "Is that fucking Craig Ferguson doing this accent?" No, it was Pat Oswald. Uh, but uh, but man, that is the most terrible CGI creation I have seen. I think since the Abomination in the Hulk 2008. It looks like they threw this together in an afternoon, <laughs> just because they needed to introduce it, something it in the bad. end. Credits. It was bad. I agree. I. Honestly, just put Pat Oswalt in the film. Well, Harry Styles, young heartthrob, uh, former One Direction member Harry Styles, is a uh, he's got like a five movie deal and is apparently going to be a big deal in the MCU going forward. And like, whatever, he's nothing to me right now. We'll see what happens. Isn't he supposed to be Thanos' brother or something? You know, Thanos has a history of crafting familial relationships with people that are not re- not literally related to him. So him being Thanos' brother may or may not mean that they came out of the same space vagina. So we'll uh, find okay. out. Because uh, his name should be like Banos or something. <laughs> exactly. I don't know. Thanos' brother coming back for revenge is almost like venturing into self-parody. But this appears to be Thanos' good brother. You know, so we'll see what happens. Yeah, Banos is the good one. He is coming back to go to war with with one of the old gods, though. So I'm I'm still reserving judgment as to whether he's good or evil. <laughs> so we'll find out. I don't. I don't. Okay. So after here's my question to you. So yes. after seeing this film, seeing the ensemble, seeing what they could do as characters, would you be up for another one? Another what? Another Eternals film? Yeah. Oh yeah, hundred percent. This world is interesting enough to me that I want to see more galactic scale nonsense with these these immortals just doing crazy space shit. Yeah, I'm I'm completely on board for that. I, I want to see pun- punching planets, ripping apart stars, just all kinds of crazy. I, I feel giant like scale I feel like shit. this is like a Metal Gear Solid, like Marvel Cinematic Universe is a lot like Metal Gear Solid, where every movie we find out it's a different layer of metal management that actually <laughs> runs things. Because now we're going to space. That's a legit criticism of of James Bond, I would say at this point. Uh, which you know, I'm, I'm glad we finally reached an end there. Metal Gear Solid is is, is based on James Bond, but like it, it's fair you know, enough. It's, it's a video game series, I, I I understand. But it's like every movie, it's like, oh no, he wasn't the real bad guy. He was our giant space robot. He actually runs the show. And then we'll find out, like, oh no, it's actually a council of squid beings that direct <laughs> the space robot to direct the Eternals. And it's just like, oh my god, just some, like, why don't they ever interact with each other? Oh, because they take Tuesdays off. And that's when all that stuff happened with Avengers. 
I'm uh, I'm cackling because I've seen the entire Loki series and it it follows a pretty similar pattern. Oh, I'm obnoxious. I'm sorry. Like, no, Loki worked for me because I dig Doctor Who. I I can deal. I can do camp and I can do world ending, uh, death and danger. Um, and I can do with the entire thing resetting until before next week's episode because we're we've got another world ending threat to deal with. Then I'm not going to say I've never become disillusioned with that sort of storytelling, but it is something that I am somewhat intrinsically drawn to so yeah I, can't, um, I would not say that i think this movie had a bit more personality than some of the previous films both visually uh musically ramin javadi's score i think made this movie it gave this movie a unique musical voice in the same way that mark mothersbaugh and thor ragnarok did um it did not sort of f- fall into the background like all the other interchangeable marvel music that has come up until now so i think there's there's a bit to there's a bit to enjoy here um i also think this movie takes the stakes takes its characters personal stakes seriously even if it was kind of all over the place on tone so by and large this movie worked for me flaws and all and i am eager to see where they go next with it i would say the movie ultimately did not work for me although i did like aspects of it and i definitely appreciated that they tried to take a more serious tone uh, i felt like it was just too many characters it was just, it was a bit too messy and i'm not interested in seeing where they go next unless they focused on just like two of them and and actually explored them as, as characters as aspiring humans well they put them in a very large spaceship so they got room for lots more next time and i and i'm not a doctor who guy i my wife is i never got into it i think the uh what are the box things called the, the TARDIS. No, 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 no. The the the, the exterminate folks. Oh, uh, the Daleks. The Daleks are the stupidest sci-fi thing. Like I, every time they're on the screen, I'm like, why doesn't someone just kick them over? Because <laughs> they'll laser you in the face no, with their stupid. death ray. They're stupid. They're trash can monsters. Like they're dumb. I have to give Doctor Who some credit because, uh, you know, Star Trek felt the need to reimagine its monsters. The Klingons were basically just humans with mustaches in the original series. And they were like, you know, we need to make them look a bit, a bit scarier if we're bringing them back for next gen. So we're going to give them a bunch of shit on their face. Yeah, too. let's have some tectonic <laughs> plates on their head. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So um, whereas Doctor Who was just like, yeah, bring back the Daleks. We've got a bunch of them in storage. We'll just dust them off. Right. <laughs> yeah, the plungers are greased up and ready to go. It's yeah. Pew, pew. And, you know, they they eventually gave them the ability to fly and cra- craft world ending paradox machines and shit. But, you know, sure. yeah, they're, they're pretty cheesy villain. Um, and a lot of this is pretty cheesy and campy, which is a tone that I think fits pretty well with this material. But I, I can grant if you don't have much of an appetite for that, I can't fault you for that. Oh, also, Shang-Chi is definitely the best Marvel film I've seen this year. It was better than Black Widow and it was better than this film. Fair point. You have not seen Shang-Chi, so I don't expect a response to that. I just wanted to let you know where this one ranks for me. Yeah, but you like every movie. So where would it rank on my scale of Marvel films? Which is, they're all terrible. Uh, I don't know what to do with that, Daniel. Yeah. Uh, pro- probably some somewhere worse than uh, Iron Man 2. I don't know. No, Iron Man 3 is the worst one. No, I love Iron Man 3. You love every movie. <laughs> That's your whole gimmick. All right. Well, Daniel, any final thoughts about this film? You know... Uh... I want I want to see more from Makari because they I, I guess like they introduce her character in like the this is Lauren Ridloff the speedster who is uh, who is deaf and uh, yeah and that's about all I can say about her because she doesn't have much personality beyond that yeah like they introduce her towards the end and I'm like okay cool like new character maybe she's gonna do something to help save the day and tie her into the group and then she doesn't I'm like okay great well I'm glad she was in the film <laughs> uh, so maybe uh, future films more Makari. I don't know. The, I mean, they at least 
made it seem like she was part of the God family. All of them knew some sign language and chatted with her using that language. So, which is the sort of thing you expect with a family that has a deaf person. Why, why, uh, sure. Why, why is she deaf? Like, why would the, uh, grand creator, uh, create a deaf, uh, robot person? I don't know. I mean, we see that, we see that these people can be injured. It's possible that it was in response to an injury, but. That would have been cool to see, but okay. I'm sure. Sure. Yeah. The inscrutability of God's plan, Daniel. Do you, do you know <laughs> All why? this has happened before. I can see why you were a Christian for so long. <laughs> You're hand waving away a lot of questions. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well. Yeah, I guess that's it, Daniel. This this movie's gone on for a third of the length of the film and then some, so I think we better wrap it up. All right. Yeah, um, solid effort. It's a miss for me, but uh, I think I did not hang it as much as I've kind of tracked it, I guess, I guess on the podcast. I, I did not hang it. That's going on the poster right there. I know they told us on the night that if we tweeted under uh, hashtag Eternals, it might go on a billboard in Times Square. I did not hate it. That's, uh, that's a Daniel uh, original. Uh, I would have also gone with at least you tried. Yeah, if, if they quoted me on the night, it would have been this movie mostly worked for me and I'll have plenty to gush about. So here's something I hated. <laughs> and it was I, I just had to shit talk Pip the Dwarf because God, that looked terrible. Anyway, I thought it was a leprechaun. <laughs> well, if you have any feedback on our discussion of Eternals, feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail.com. Thank you for tuning in at filmwonk.net and have a good night. Good night.